Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host. I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week. Therefore, it's another episode. Today's episode... This Essex boy gets to talk to some Essex royalty today. I've only got bloody Dave Rantry a blur on the podcast. This was an absolutely delightful chat. The day that we recorded this was also, I woke up that morning super excited that I'm getting a chat to, to Dave from Blur. And bloody Blur announced they're playing Wembley Stadium. So it was a great day to, to, to catch up with Dave and, and to ask him about the, the reunion show and playing Wembley Stadium. Uh, we talk about his new record. We talk about all sorts of great stuff. DJing, Essex, and all the usual stuff that we talk about on this podcast. It's a lovely episode. Um, so big thanks to, to Annie for sorting that out. And also some other thanks as well. Um, big thanks to the official sponsor, of Off The Beat and Track Podcast, which is Hotel Chocolat. It's getting near Christmas now, so go get your chocolate stuff. You know that they do the good stuff. I mean, their advent calendars are ace as well. If you're vegan, their vegan chocolate's incredible. And if you like a little tipple at Christmas, I cannot recommend enough their little boozy uh, their little boozy range and their, their creamy boozy range. That's the one. They do some incredible stuff. Go check out my tip, the mint chocolate. It is off the scale, and the salted caramel one's nice as well. They're all nice. His hotel show, his chocolate and booze. What's not to like? Anyway, um, they're the official sponsors of Off the Beat and Track podcast. So huge thanks to them. Uh, I'd like to thank the team at the Blue Murder Club podcast. Uh, they produce this podcast for me. Um, it's a great podcast over there. Go check it out if you like your true crime. Uh, you can go and listen to them talking about all the kind of I won't say the big hitters, but uh, you can hear them talking about Jeffrey Dahmer, Fred and Rose, all of those super famously awful people. Um, but we know that True Crime Podcasts are the biggest podcasts out there. And uh, yeah, so go get stuck in uh, the Blue Murder Club podcast. Go give it a listen. And yeah, they're the production team behind this. So thank you very much. Uh, and you lot, always you lot, you lot have been supporting this podcast now for 470 episodes. And, and I've got to have so many absolutely incredible chats and and i've got to meet so many people that have have been really important in uh in, in my life you know that have inspired me that have soundtracked you know so much stuff that i've done and and none more so than today's guest and blur are a huge band for me um me and my mates would go and watch them very early on they played the the toothbrush my club which we talk about 
Um, and I got to see them so many times. Uh, I, I got to see them. I sneaked in. Me and my mate sneaked in to um, Clacked Oscars on Clacton Pier when they'd done a little seaside tour. We made up some fake press passes from Select Magazine and blagged our way in. Uh, and it was really mad watching Blur, watching them sort of play these tiny little sweaty clubs as a as a as a young teen, and then watching them become you know huge pop stars and, and seeing them at like Wembley Arena and things like that. So yeah, it's uh, it's such a great chat this one. Also, uh, if you've just joined uh, this podcast for the first time to listen to my chat with Dave, once you finish that one, go and have a look in the in the archive because. I mentioned earlier we've had 470 episodes and you can hear me talking to if you like your indie stuff I've had who have I had on Swade uh, Vaccine Sleaford Mods Idols uh, The Killers uh, The Foo Fighters uh, I've had lots of kind of big rock bands on as well like Tommy Lee from Motley Crue and yeah and if you like your your DJs and your dance music you can hear me talking to the likes of Fatboy Slim producers as well uh, Butch Vig and you can yeah I mean on the on the indie tip I've had a bloody lot. So go and have a good old rummage about in the archive. It's wherever you get your podcasts, go and have a little look. Uh, and you'll find loads that you'll um, you'll recognise and I'm sure you'll be intrigued to listen to all of their song picks and hear about their creative journey this far. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast any more, um, we, we talked to Dave today about his, his radio show that he had on XFM. And, uh, and, and I produce little radio shows and you can access them uh, amongst all sorts of other things on my Patreon. So it costs you a dollar a month. That's about 20 pence a week. And I know that you all skip this bit, but it is it is an ask. And I know it is a big ask at the moment because times are tough. But if you can spare 20p a week, then each week you will get playlists. You get to watch all the episodes. If you like to watch your podcasts and see the guest faces and stuff, unfortunately you have to stomach mine. But you can watch all the, the episodes over on Patreon. And I do a live show once a month and uh, on Zoom. And you can all come along and you can all guest on it and you can all talk about, we pick a question from the podcast and uh, and you all bring along a track and you talk about it and you all feature in your own little episode and uh, and we release that on the Patreon as well. Uh, and so there's there's loads of stuff over there. And I, I, like I said, I make little radio shows and, and play some songs and have a little chit-chat and yeah, you can get it all. And there's a huge back catalogue of stuff over there as well. So for a dollar a month, even if you sign up for a month for a dollar, um, then you can go and rinse all the back catalogue and uh, and then unsubscribe. I hope you don't. I hope you really enjoy it and you feel like you get lots of bang for your buck. And you stick about because uh, it's a lovely little community and you'll find that out at the live shows. There's so many ace people that just turn up and, and like to talk about records and it's not a judgy thing we're not all like trying to be uber cool credible indie kids like we're just all talking about records that we really love uh whatever they are i mean somebody chose Hal and pace uh on a recent one as the song that soundtrack their time at school so uh i think that's the sort of measure of uh of how credible uh and uh an indie schmindy these these chats are they're not they're lovely anyway i digress if you'd like to support the podcast you can do that over on um, patreon.com forward slash off the beaten track or alternatively you can go there and uh, you can go to the website and find out all about the patreon all about social media and everything else you need to know about this podcast and that's off the beat and and i always have to do that little pause there because it's beat and not beaten off the beat and track podcast.com
anyway. Should we get on with it? Please enjoy Off The Beat and Track Podcast with the wonderful Dave Roundtree. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me, stew with it. Okay, we are recording. Dave Roundtree, how are you today? Good, thank you. Good, good, good. Well, look, before we do anything, um, I was so excited about this anyway, uh, but then there's been the added excitement. I've seen this morning you're off to play Wembley Stadium. Yes, who knew? (laughs) (laughs) Is that that a first for Blur? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. It's it's one of those uh, odd... One of those uh, few gigs, really, in the UK that are iconic in the same way that, uh, you know, Madison Square Garden is, the Hollywood Bowl is, Budokan and Tokyo, you know. And uh, we've played all those other places. So it was, uh, you know, to get the offer to do that, it was very hard to turn that down. Even though it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do these days, playing shows, you know, there was no Brexit as... as uh, and various other things have completely uh, have completely trashed the UK touring industry. So it's hard to find coaches, lorry drivers, hard to find uh, stage crew, hard to find venues. So uh, yeah, I mean, just to, to touch on that, you said that you know about playing Madison Square Garden and things like that. For a band that's achieved so much, do you still kind of have that? Oh, Wembley. Oh yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'll do that one. Like. Yeah, it's Wembley, isn't it? <laughs> so, had they said, you know, the the Brighton football stadium or something, we'd have gone, ah, nothing against Brighton. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's not got that kind of iconic thing about it, has it? But yeah. Wembley, you know, it, 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 as we've, got, we've got very little to prove these days. We've done everything there is to do as a band, you know. We've had the hits and played the shows and festivals and all of this you know, so to to sort of tempt us back out again as a as a unit, somebody's got to come up with an interesting idea, really. Yeah. So it was it was the start of those British summertime festivals, which were actually called that at the time in two thousand nine in Hyde Park that first made us think, well, that's that's like our local venue, really, Hyde Park. You know, so that that's what first got us interested again. And there was twenty twelve, the Olympics. Then we got asked if we wanted to play the party at the end of the Olympics. Well, who can say no to that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, various various times people have come up with interesting ideas, interesting things to try that we haven't done before. One of the things that you touched on there about um, things that had affected, you know, the, the infrastructure for touring bands and things, another mm. thing that, that massively impacted on that was the, the, the pandemic. Uh, and, and just to sort of ask you to cast your mind back to that, uh, for a moment, Dave, how did you find those sort of eighteen months as a well, both as a, as a, as a human and and professionally as well? Well, as a human, obviously, as as with everybody, it was diff- it was a difficult time. You know, I lost relatives and uh, the isolation was difficult. I mean, I live out in the middle of the country, so you know, I'd moved. I'd sold my London flat um, shortly before the pandemic and uh, moved permanently out to the country 
So I had, you know, had I been stuck in my one bedroom flat in London, it would have been a whole different pandemic experience. God knows if I could have actually coped with that. I would have found that very, very difficult. But uh, so it was it was easier being out in the country for for definite. Um, But, you know, in the early days, we didn't know what's going to happen, did we? We thought everybody might die. We thought that might be the end of the world. It It wasn't clear even to, you know, politicians weren't saying that wasn't true. Yeah. You know, nobody knew what was going to happen, and uh, you know, when the first, when the when I had my first dose of the vaccine, I burst into tears. I was so overjoyed and so yeah. so grateful to the scientists who'd worked so hard to make that happen. I suppose one upside of the pandemic turned out to be because I was uh, working on a on some uh, TV shows at the time. And uh, that's kind of my day job, really, or has been my day job for the past five or six years. And, uh, of course, the film industry ground to a halt, as all other industries did. So uh, that, that work dried up. which could have been a terrible downside, but uh, that's what spurred me, really, to getting my album done. It had been a vague plan for quite some time. But uh, these things always give way when somebody comes in offering paid work. You know, your kind of, uh, your sort of vague um, deadline-free solo project always takes a back seat, and that's the reason it hasn't been done for all these years. So, um, uh, The producer, Leo, and I were been chatting about working together and, you know, it never quite happened. And then the lockdown... Lockdown two, I think, happened again, and the, you know the things got pushed back again, and and so we just thought, I tell you what, we were, it's obviously, it's obviously not going to happen in the short term, but let's just, you know, but neither of us got anything to do. Let's just start doing some preparatory work on the album. We'll start getting things in shape so that when we are allowed back in the same room together, we can just kind of motor on and get it all done. And uh, kind of two months later, the album was finished. It turned out to be a very, a very productive way to work. We both have perfectly good studios that we could work from, you know. And both got lots of gear to work with, and uh, we would get together in the mornings over Zoom and ch- ch- chat about the day's work and allocate tasks, and then uh, just swap files throughout the day, swap MIDI files, swap uh, audio files. And uh, and uh, yeah, it was a, obviously if we both it, we were working at double speed compared to had we been worth both been working in the same studio. So it was uh, actually even though I don't think I would make want to make another album that way. It, it actually turned out to be a very good. You know, I would if I do it again, I, I would do it in a more hybrid way because you do miss out having that kind of human interaction, bouncing ideas off somebody. There's no substitute for that. And, you know, getting ideas at the end of the day, once you sent your files off, is no substitute for getting feedback in the minute going, oh, no, no, don't do that, do this. Try, yeah, try, yeah. try that. I've got a great idea, you know. So we missed out on that kind of thing. Or, you know, those had to come from ourselves, really. But uh, I think had I been less experienced at music making, obviously less experienced at working in a studio, it might have been more challenging. But uh, it was, yeah... Yeah, it was difficult. The whole the whole period was uh, was uh, 
will go down. It's a historically challenging for those individuals and uh, and for the country, wasn't it? That that will get taught in schools for Absolutely. generations. Absolutely. Well, let's start your playlist, Dave. And yeah. for track one, I'm going to ask you to tell me the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please. Well, I struggled with this one a bit, and this was this wasn't my first choice. What was your first choice? Well, I can't remember now. I went through. <laughs> Well, I, start, I just started thinking about intros and what makes a great intro, you see, and, you know, but in general, I don't think music should have intros. I think the music should start off interesting. What do you mean the by very, that? Well, the worst kind of intro is let's go four times around the verse, and then the vocals come in. That's the very, very worst. And, you know, if you're, I used to have a radio show, and uh, would have to listen to, not have to, would have the joy of listening to hundreds of tra- new tracks a week. You don't get past those first four bars if they go, right, four times around, then the first vocals come in for the first verse. You, bar three, you've switched off and moved on to the next one. So it shouldn't have, if it doesn't grab you in those first four bars, nobody's going to listen to any, especially today, where it's so, you know, you don't have to get a record out of the sleeve put it on the record player, put the needle on, you know, you just go click next. Well, so, you, on that point, before before yes. you actually sort of tell us what your, your pick is, Dave, it's, it's really interesting that you're saying, because I often talk to, to, to artists about that kind of, the, the, the shortening of attention spans of generations, that, that, you know, more recent generations, and the way that they're, they're consuming their music is through apps and, and streaming platforms and, and she says they're not pulling vinyl out of a sleeve and things like that so has your because for me when I, I i cast my mind back to 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 growing up listening to to the music that you've made the intros are pretty pretty on point uh- burrow's furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And and there's some crackers out there. And was 
what was the kind of creative process at that point when you was making you know let's maybe talk about the first I don't know three or four blur records was getting on the radio a, a, a thing like that was you was it all about getting on radio was it about getting them earworms grabbing people's attention that that, ne- that never had to be said really you know I think we all we all see that as the the part and parcel of making pop music that's the genre mm. we work in you know so nobody's ever had nobody's ever had to say in blur i tell you what let's make let's let's try and grab them from the off <laughs> we always try and grab them from the off yeah you know i just don't understand why people wouldn't want to do that and it, it's intros aren't really part of the genre you know mm. but when you look go back to the 60s you go one two three four and start with the first verse yeah well, those Motown tracks, no intro at all. One, two, three, four. Hello, man. Off they yeah. go. Don't go around four times around the bloody verse. Yeah. This is a prog rock, has one of the many things that prog rock has, uh, <laughs> has done to the thing I love called music is uh, these long, boring intros, self indulgent intros. But anyway, there's never any reason to go four times around the verse before the vocal comes in. If that's all you got, Bring the vocal in, you know. Nobody wants to hear the guitar for play the same chords four times. Just nobody wants to hear that. Well, you touched on Motown, Dave. So yeah. do you want do you want to bring in your your, your track that you're going to uh, choose today? Yeah. So this is this is uh, uh, it's Marvin Gaye heard it through the grapevine. There's no it it does technically go four times around the verse. You know, every single part is an earworm. There's no, there's, it doesn't just play the chords four times. You're not sitting there waiting for the song to start. You know, two beats in, you're on your feet heading for the dance floor. Yeah. It's the, it's a get, what the hell are you doing sitting down intro? Get up there. Yeah. I don't care whether you can dance or not. Go. <laughs> it's, it's pretty perfect, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's you know it's it's uh, those Motown tracks were played by some of the greatest jazz musicians of the age you know who were moonlighting at Motown as the house band and so they were they had this astonishing virtuosity and that when you listen to virtuoso players often it's the it's uh, like like with art, you know visual artists. Sometimes you think, how have you managed to get all of that expressiveness in just that one brush stroke? You know, yeah. and the same with these kind of virtuoso players. The less they play, the more they play. You know, the less they play, the more you feel they knew just how little they could get away with. And it's in pop music, it's the spaces between the notes that make you want to dance. Really, yeah. Marvin Gaye. In, in regards to that, that kind of hit factory that was, was Motown, I guess Marvin Gaye, certainly when we talk about having them instant hits, which, which Motown had a, a, a huge body of work of, but if you look at, I guess, the, the biggest selling record in the Motown songbook is the What's Going On record, and which, obviously, if I'm right, Barry Gordy was famously against and was like, there's no hits on this, it's not that kind of formula that, that Motown was operating as, and it was this big, more, I guess, more proggy kind of, you know, experimental concept record, and then went on to be the biggest-selling track. So I, I'm always intrigued 
with, with with those other intros that what can if you look at sort of Papa was a Rolling Stone as well, very different to the the stuff that the Temptations are doing prior to that kind of started to experiment a little bit. But did you feel that with like maybe sort of uh, some of the sort of the the, the the later albums after the Great Escape and things like that that you felt like you wanted to experiment more and maybe move away from the the sort of pop sensibilities of lots of the sort of previous stuff. We've always tried to make a different record, really, to the previous one. Again, it's never not something that ever was ever had to be said. Yeah, you know, we're not we've never been that interested in repeating ourselves. I guess the close we got close to it once or twice, kind of, you know. But yeah, I mean, the three of our records, I guess, were kind of a, a set, really, you know. But uh, but still, when you listen to the individual tracks, I mean, it's true within an album as on an album, really. The the tracks are always pretty disparate. Yeah, you know, the kind of music, the 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 tone and the and the the kind of shape of things. So we haven't really wanted to repeat ourselves song to song as well as record to record really but yeah i mean overall our kind of sensibilities changed and you know the, the the music we were making on our second album was seen as radical nearly got us dropped from the record label you know who thought we who famously came into the studio and told us it was commercial suicide you know and uh when we complained, actually, we thought it was quite good. He said, "Well, there better be other people better agree with you, or you're dropped." <laughs> <laughs> you know. So uh, when you listen to it now, it sounds relatively, relatively conventional, doesn't it? But the, the, the music at the time was very, very different. You know, yeah. that was an album that picked up conventions by its ears and kind of spun it around a bit. Yeah. Okay. Tell me uh, for track two, Dave, the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. Well, it, it's very hard to say. Music, all music has always had an emotional impact on me. So so I kind of adjusted the question to be something that kind of uh, made me sort of uh, reconsider what that, what, what uh, emotional music might be. And, you know, having lambasted prog rock. So I think it deserves lambasting. <laughs> Doesn't mean that some of it isn't very good. So I've had Shine On, Pink Floyd. I mean, Pink Floyd really transcended that genre in so many different ways. And another band that reinvented themselves many times. And I, I very much doubt they ever got up one morning as a unit and said let's reinvent ourselves today I'm sure they just did whatever seemed most interesting at the time which is how musicians in my experience tend to work um, but yeah it's very uh, I'm not somebody who's ever really listened to lyrics in music particularly that hasn't been the interesting thing for me um, you know, the interesting thing has been the emotional impact of the music. That's what I've always wanted to get from music is that emotional, that kind of the best music kind of gets you in the guts somehow, yeah. you know, in a way that music uniquely can, I think, certainly for me, other people may find it different, but um, 
yes, and Pink, Pink Floyd, I don't, the, the lyrics made me sit up and think about that as well. So, uh, but yeah, Pink Floyd, I've, I've always found to be an incredibly, uh, um, well, what word could you even use to describe music like that? Transcendent, I suppose. It takes you, it takes you out of the place where you are and plonks you emotionally and plonks you somewhere else. It certainly can do. Interesting though, because you have to be, you know, it's like watching a magician, isn't it? Really, you can watch a magician in two ways. You can watch it going, well, how's he doing that? Well, I know he's turned his, he's turned, he's waving this hand and he's turned his side on, hiding the other hand. That's why. That's when he's doing the magic with his other hand. What's the other hand doing? Oi, turn around, mate. Let me see the other hand. <laughs> or you can go, wow, that person's floating in the air. That's amazing. Oh, wow. Let your mind be boggled by it. The similar is true of music, isn't it? You have to, you, it's, a, it's an actually an active process by the listener. You have to, you have to buy into the, buy into the process, buy into the emotional transformation that's taking place, or else it's just wallpaper. Can you stand back and appreciate the magic of music, Dave, in, 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 a, in a way, by, by, by that I mean for somebody that spends so much time in studios and, and deconstructing music and, and looking at the sort of separate parts of music, when you hear a song there, are you, you know, do you feel like you've seen behind the curtain, for want of a better description, and, and you know, you can, you're picking it apart rather than just standing back and just letting it all, you know, hit you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, and then that's a difficult thing in the studio because the, the part, the deconstruction and reconstruction process leaves you with something that sounds rubbish. You know, while you're making music, it's a, there's a leap of faith going on. You're never quite sure if when you get to the end, you're going to end up with something that's good or not. Plus, if you've written the song, you've invested an amount of emotion in it anyway, which means it can kid you into thinking it's good when in fact it isn't. You know? I, I meant more that if you hear a song on the radio, like, oh, do, I see. Do, do you see, do you know, do you pick it apart, you know, as, as a musician or do you just let it wash over you as a whole? Um, depends. Depends. Like, the best best music like the best film scores you don't even really notice what's going on behind the scenes do you like the best film scores you don't hear at all you're just bloody scared when the monster walks in you know but you don't know why you're that scared and when you see it without the music it's like what's that blob what's going on here what's the blob doing who's the blob you know? <laughs> but when the music's playing it's like oh the blob yeah christ oh my god i can't look oh the best music's like like that as well, isn't it? If you start to notice the drums, probably the drummer's doing something wrong. Yeah. Not always true. I mean, some music is about the virtuosity. Jazz is about the virtuosity of the players, isn't it? And heavy metal, to some extent, it is as well. But, uh, yeah, in general, the kind of music, that kind of music that transports you like that, you don't want to see behind the scenes, do you? You don't want the fourth wall to come crashing down. <laughs> Tell me uh, a, a song that reminds you of your time at school, please, Dave. Uh, so I said, The Sound of the Suburbs by The Members. Cracker. I had this uh, seven-inch on clear vinyl. 
in a picture sleeve, and the picture sleeve was uh, uh, interior. I think, if I remember rightly, it was uh, a picture of a kind of drawing of somebody's living room with the TV in the middle, and the middle was cut out, and then the clear vinyl uh, went inside the sleeve, so you could see through that, and then the picture behind the wall, behind the behind the record was the picture on the TV, so it kind of moved when you took the vinyl in and out. That was my pride and joy, that. Oh, I loved that. It just, it just reminds me. I, I played it. I played it again. Actually, it's held up reasonably well in the, in the way that many punk songs actually haven't. That and the Sex Pistols also have. But yeah, a lot of it sounds very flat now, and you just can wonder how it made you so bouncy at the time how, how was school was it something you enjoyed no hated school why did you hate it just so bored all the time just so bored was you so, a creative kid um I, tw- I I guess I probably was a creative kid that wasn't expressing his creativity in, in particularly well you know I was, all I wanted to do really was get home and play the drums so I kicked myself really. I wasted my school days. Didn't you know? Did the bare minimum I could get away with. And then went on to Thames Poly to study computer science, which was a sub- subject I was also always already very familiar with. So didn't need to do any work really. So uh, well, I wasted both of those. Aside from. Um... Like, oh, when when you was at school, did you know what you wanted to be? You said that you wanted to get home and play drums. Did it seem that that was something that could be a career? Yeah, it was always going to be a career, absolutely. What, in drumming? You, you was confident in that at a young age? Yeah. I was good at it straight away, you see. I was utterly obsessed with it, spent all my time practising. So, you know, I did the 10,000 hours you need to do quite quickly probably in the first month I did my 10,000 hours I was uh, no within a, within two or three years I was good enough to do it professionally I would say and I was still a young kid you know I was kind of tiny kid with a shock of bright red hair kind of you know playing jazz with adults and playing in orchestras and brass bands pop music you know everything being one of the reasons I set this podcast up, Dave, was through myself being from Essex and and growing up in bands and things like that, and and always feeling that that pressure and speaking to other musicians from Essex as well. I was going to initially base it on on, on my home county uh, and and ask about that that constant thing of like, oh, well, you, you're going to move to London then? You got to move mm-hmm. to London if you want to make it, and yeah. uh, and and I always sort of feel like well, why should you and and where I want to go with that is did you feel that there was a scene where you grew up that uh, you know was there something in Essex that made it think oh yeah we could make it here um, there definitely was a scene growing up there were pubs and clubs and bars where you could play but there was no sense that you could that was the foundation of a career. Yeah. You know, you would never get noticed play, playing in the Essex venues. You know, you had to, if you wanted to get noticed by the industry, you had to play in the pubs where the industry were drinking, and that was in London. 
and Colchester and all those towns 100 miles from London have always suffered from that. It's They're just not far enough away, like Manchester, you know, to have its own built-in music industry that are going to the Manchester clubs. Um, and so it's not just true of the music industry, it's true of all kinds of things, you know, the, why, why wouldn't you go to London? You know, it's close enough to commute. Why wouldn't you be in London? So it's a shame, but I think it's just to do with the geography, really, and the electrification of the railways. That's what I blame. It's yeah. the electrification of the railways. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad my dad worked at the BBC, and he he commuted every day of his working life from Colchester to, uh, to uh, London, to Liverpool Street, and uh, he... I remember his journey getting slow, getting quicker and quicker and quicker as I grew up. You know, it was an hour and a half when I first remember him doing it, and it was forty minutes. You know, by the end, I was going fifty minutes or something under an hour. And it, you know, it takes you. I, I at one point in my life, I lived in Hampstead in North London. It took me an hour to get from Hampstead. Why wouldn't you go? From, why wouldn't you move to Colchester? <laughs> All things being equal, was. Was home in, in, in Colchester a, a musical place? Aside from your thousands of hours of drumming every night, like apart from that, was you brought up around music? Well, both my parents were classical musicians, but both of them had quit the industry for, for various reasons. And so had kind of turned their back on it to some extent. Um, and so both, well, my dad anyway carried on making music as a hobby. My mum was a violinist who spent her entire childhood training for a job in an orchestra, turned up on her first day at an orchestra and uh, went, oh, God, it's going to be like this. Put the violin down and never picked it up again. Really? Really, yeah. It was a horrendous place to work. And she was, remember, she was a young blonde woman in her 20s in the 1960s and this, all, this awfully misogynistic environment of an uh, orchestra. So... Uh, yeah, she thought, sod that, for a game of soldiers. And uh, so they both told me not to do it for, for as, a, as a job, to do it, keep it as a hobby. They said, if you keep it as a hobby, you'll love it forever. If you do it for a living, it'll chew you up and spit you out. So, uh, of course, I completely ignored them. <laughs> <laughs> it was all I wanted to do, really. I trained as a computer, as my dad was instilled in me a love of electronics and computers that sustained me to this very day. So that's my original career. You know, that's the, what I professed was going to be my original career. And in fact, the first jobs I got were in that field, but uh, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. And in fact, working as a computer programmer almost killed off my love of computers, whereas working as a musician has never killed off my love of music. <laughs> Turns out being a commercial computer programmer is not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> whereas a commercial musician is tell me what the first record you remember buying was well I think it was the Jungle Book soundtrack from Man's Music in Colchester nice. used to have a record shop a record department right at the back of the shop to, I, went, I went to school with Timothy Mann who whose father started Man's Music, and uh, he now runs it. I was in Colchester the other day. I popped in. I said, Timothy Mann wouldn't happen to still work here, would it? And turned out I was talking to his son. Wow. Uh, Tim was at the back of the shop. I gave him a big hug. Told him I loved him. Oh, wonderful. 
So I think it was the, I think it was that. I think I went in with my mum and, uh, and uh, we bought together the Jungle Book and I played it to death. What great songs. Oh, incredible. Songs. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The, and that that sort of love of, of you know the records that you bought as a youngster and 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 you know being you know independent artists move you know as your as as your career started and then you know becoming legitimate pop stars and such all the way through that journey like how important and to this day how important is the is the record shop for you these days less important but in the you know when i was a kid that was really the only way to hear new music you know, there were the very few radio stations, the ones that were were uh, very, very formulaic and playlisted. And so, you know, you would hear new music on top of the pops or you could go into the record shop, you put some headphones on and play an album, terrified that you were going to scratch it because you didn't have enough money to buy it, which is what you had to do if you scratched it. <laughs> And uh, it was really the only way to hear new music. You get booted off the record player after thirty minutes, and it, that was uh, that. It was a, uh, it was uh, the focal point of the music-interested community. Really, your friends would be there. You would meet people there. You would discover shared loves of music there. It was a communal. You know, one of the communal things that made music a hobby in those days in a way that it isn't really now. Gig going and festival going especially is a hobby now, I guess. But um, in the old days, music listening was a hobby because it had because it had things of that kind of social nature. You know, you, music was expensive to consume. It's very, very cheap to consume now. So, uh, you know, your album collection would be a prized individual things that you sweated your your socks off to be able to afford. And you, you, you'd be jealous of albums your friend had in their collection and you would all go around to listen to each other's records because you didn't have them yourself in a way that must seem incomprehensible now to people, to kind of kids now growing up in this age of infinite music on tap, disposable music. But yeah, music was a hobby in those days, and the record shop was a part of that. Dave, you've achieved like ridiculous, you know, things within within music, and you touched on something uh, a moment ago. You mentioned Top of the Pops. Now, I know that you was on there countless times. Tell me about the excitement of going on for the first time, and what you remember about the first time you went on Top of the Pops, and did it deliver? I mean, I presume you grew up watching Top of the Pops, obsessing over it as, as we all did. Yeah. Now, my, I have to say, that was all a long time ago, the first we were on Top of the Pops. <laughs> what was it? Would it have been, there's no other way? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Probably. 
Um, but it went through phases. I can't remember the details of the um, of the individual performances. Really, you would think I would be able to, but uh, there was a lot going on in those days, and that was just one of the many things we had to do that week. But uh, the, on the upside, it was a very easy day because you you mined basically. So they had these special drum kits that were with special heads on and didn't make any noise and special cymbals that just went clank rather than smash. And uh, other than, you know, the lead guitars weren't plugged in, everybody was miming the vocals. So there was, there was no drama in the same way that there is if you're going on stage. It doesn't matter if you messed it up so you could just relax. On the downside, it was a very, very boring day. Oh, really? Early. And you spent so long sitting around while the people in the control room obsessed over kind of camera angles and, you know, God knows what they were obsessing over. So you had, you had two two or three run-throughs, I think, through, throughout the day. The BBC canteen used to be subsidised, so you would get your lunch for 23p. And <laughs> <laughs> so we had no, we didn't have two beans to rub together. So that was always a huge bonus, getting lunch out of whatever it is we were doing. And you got lunch and dinner, actually. And then there was a subsidised bar that you could go off to later. And again, where, you know, a pint of beer was seven pence. So, uh, yeah, that was all the upsides. But, yeah, it was a surprise as well that there were only actually about 20 people in the audience. So the, the, it looks like there's, it looked like that, you know, you were looking at the band over the front two rows of the audience. Actually, there only were two rows of the audience. And the applause at the end of every song was canned. It wasn't the, the 20 people in the audience applauding. It was, uh, it was a sound effect that was added on afterwards. So oh, that's that a was, curtain I don't want to look behind. <laughs> it, was odd, it was a very odd day. So there was no, as a result, there were only a few people in the studio. There was no real atmosphere there. So it was kind of hard to get that kind of gig feeling. Yeah. But then it would change. Over the years, it changed. Then the vocals had to be live. Then the whole band had to be live. Then everybody sounded awful. So oh. it, <laughs> <laughs> it went back to miming again. And then that was it. It finished and there was no more music on the TV. Mm. Okay. So, got an interesting answer from you for, for, for this one. Song that soundtrack your years clubbing, please, Dave. Yeah. Well, I didn't really have years clubbing. I don't know where people found the time to go clubbing. I was, I was always working, you know, especially in the evenings. Yeah. So if I wasn't playing music myself and going to gigs myself, I was going to other people's gigs. Yeah, he didn't go out clubbing. So was there never something kind of in the the, the early days of, of of the band and such when you know gigs were done? Would you never go out sort of to to, to clubs and parties afterwards? Mm, not really clubs where people dance. No. I'll tell you what. I'll change up the question. I'll change up the question. Yeah. You like to go out and DJ. So <laughs> you you now you now play the records in the clubs. So what's a record that is never out of your record box that you guarantee. If you get in trouble, what can you pull out that will get you out of trouble? <laughs> Once you get out of jail card. 
Well, you, you can't go wrong if you head back to the 60s. That's what I've always found. And the dance floor flags head back to the 60s. You know, so um, the Monkees, uh, the Beatles. Yeah. They both only have a couple of tracks that uh, you can you can play, but they're both guaranteed floor fillers. And then you have to, the difficult thing then is to weave your way back out of the 60s, back to something more. You can't, you can't suddenly then play some kind of modern indie music yeah. that sounds radically different. Think, what, what's going on here? Things are falling over. So you have to kind of subtly weave your way in and out of genres, really. So I've often, I've often found great tracks. I think Primal Scream are the ultimate band for weaving your way. They, they have a foot in both stools, yeah, really. They're perfect. They Primal Scream. They're kind of 60s. They're kind of modern. So that's how I get out of the 60s again. And what's great about Loaded, if we use Loaded as an example, yeah. not only is it a great bridging record, you can also yeah. then disappear, have a wee, and get back, because it's a nice <laughs> long track as well. That's a proper good one to have in a record box yeah, yeah. and get you out of trouble, Absolutely. Loaded. <laughs> Moving On Up's a great one as well. Oh, joyous. They, they've got a yeah, bunch of them. But, yeah, I've got, quite a, I've got quite a good emergency 60s collection, things that have worked over the years. But I tend to... Because it's a, I tend to group records into threes these days. So if I can find three records that work well together, then that answers that question for the next three records of what we're going to play next. Yeah. And that's the pan the panic thing for a DJ when they're standing there, kind of looking quite busy. It's because they're going, "Oh my god, what am I going to play next? I've got oh three minutes. God, I've only got two minutes. Oh, I've only got a minute. I've chosen it." Um, I suppose the ultimate thing is if you still can't decide, you just start talking, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you pick up the microphone and go, yeah, it's very good to see you tonight. I hope you enjoyed yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mentioned before we pressed uh, record on this that uh, you, you, you came to my pink toothbrush um, to, to DJ on our 30th anniversary. And uh, unfortunately, I wasn't there that night. So I didn't get to, to meet you there. But um, I was there way, way back um, on, uh, was it the first Blur Tour? It would have been the first tour, wouldn't it? Well, my very first gig after we were signed, yeah. Like, what are your memories of, of, of that, that sort of first tour? Well, it was, we were experimenting really on that first tour. We'd just signed and we'd sat down with the record company and we they'd said, look, nobody cares now if you, if you cock it up, it's not going to be a big deal. Now is the time. If you want to experiment with the format, do it now. You won't be able to do it once you're established and things are settled down. People will be turn up expecting a certain performance. So we tried lots of different things. We tried different ways of staging it. We tried me at the front one gig. We tried, you know, me at the side, us kind of looking side on or in sort of in the round and all kinds of different things. We tried experimenting with different sort of sets you know with all kinds of stuff and and uh, one of the things we experimented with was a, a lighting with lighting we've always been big on lighting i think it's one of these things that makes the deal you don't notice a bad one but a, a good lighting designer will transform a gig for you so we, we had a very good lighting designer dave byers who's still a friend to this day and uh and uh 
he came up with a bunch of different ideas, some of which stuck and some of which didn't. But the, the, that, on that first tour, we made, he made these great big light boxes, kind of 10 feet by 10 feet, three of them that went across the back of the stage. And we had a guy called Ali Murdoch. Oh, no, it wasn't Ali Murdoch, but Ali Payne, that's right, who uh, just wandered on and would change big transparencies hanging in front of these light boxes not kind of in time to the music or anything, just kind of, it sounded on paper like it was going to be a good idea, but actually the fact that it was a, a bloke wandering on and off stage <laughs> doing it kind of scuppered it really. Had we had motorised things, it might have looked quite good in a sort of not stop making sense sort of yeah. way. But uh, actually it just looked a bit weird. So that's, I think, I think uh, that the pink toothbrush was one of those gigs well, we still had that, and uh, we were still experimenting with stuff. Wonderful. But uh, regardless of all of that, I think that first tour was really good. You know, we were a hot, hot new band getting written, written about in the press. Everybody wanted to see what all the fuss was about. You know, we were, the gigs were still quite chaotic, I think. Still a lot of running around stage, smashing things and kind of, you know... All of that still played played things at a speed that we wouldn't manage now. You know, we still play. We always play things far much faster uh, at our gigs. But in those days, I think you barely even hear what which song it was. We were playing them so fast. <laughs> well, look, let's stay in let's stay in uh, Essex for this yeah. track and uh, and tell me a favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. Well, I've I. <sighs> I struggle to, to for it not to be this track because it's a bit predictable. But uh, well, what else would be in the, the running then? Well, I mean, there's the Prodigy from Essex, another band that I absolutely love. It could easily have been almost any of their singles. Probably not Smack My Bitch Up in any, any of the other singles, but uh, you know, and there are some. Chardé from, from another kind of sensational singer, and there 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 are a lot of you know more more people than you think would come from Essex. Actually, um, I say Chardé because she lived around the corner from me. And there's a, you know the band the f the first big Colchester band, Modern English. They only had one big song, but boy was it a big song, you know. But uh, Ian Jury, I mean, I was just, I was then and still am now in absolutely in awe of him and his band. And that the, tragically, my favourite song is his biggest song, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick. Well, is it is his biggest song? One of his biggest songs, certainly. So, so good. Especially the chorus for that uh, ding, 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 yeah. ding, ding, kind of walking bass line. It's just. Chaz Jankel, unbelievable. Yeah, uh, I went to see them at one of their final gigs in the Jubilee Gardens in uh, at, at the end of the. That's it. Was it one of their final gigs? It was one of the the GLC were being abolished by Thatcher. By Thatcher, and, uh, <laughs> so they they were spending spending the money they had left in the coffers like it was going out of fashion. And one of the things they did was put on mini festivals in Jubilee Gardens, which was the. Rather, rather grandly named patch of grass in front of County Hall, um, and they put on a they put on a gig headlined by 
in during the blockheads. And I was wandering over there. I thought, well, that's a bit... They were playing some music beforehand, and one of the tracks they picked when I got closer, I realised, was Ian Jury, and I thought, well, that's a bit unfair, isn't it? Play, playing the record before the band goes on. Anyway, I got to the stage and realised it was the band. They were, they were so good. I was indistinguishable from the record. Wow. <laughs> I thought, oh, I see. Oh, God. There's a whole other level of... Uh, of uh, proficiency uh, way above the, the top one that I even imagined was there. So, oh, Christ. They gave me skates on. <laughs> <laughs> they were so good. Just so good. But um, I got to see him. I got to see him. At, I went to the first Madstock concert at Finsby Park um, and, uh, and, and I managed to, uh, to get there nice and early and, and, and see Injury and it was Unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. Unfortunately, man, I was stuck at the front then because I wanted to wait there for madness. And in between the injury and madness, famously was Morrissey who got coined and bottled, and he never turned up the second day for the next one. So I had to kind of just cover up for this like wall of bottles and 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 and, and coins and such. But uh, it was worth it for for injury. <laughs> oh my god, who would have picked that slot? Oh my god. <laughs> Do you know what, Dave? The most genius thing I saw that day, and uh, was uh, as I was queuing up to go. It was a beautiful hot day, and uh, and there was loads of. I mean, this was what nineteen ninety one, maybe. And there was loads of like old skinheads that were all probably well into their sort of fifties and sixties back then. Uh, and there was some old being in your fifties. Oh, those don't days. mate, don't. Like, I know now that that was me. That's me going to these shows now. But. Um, there was this guy just sitting outside and he had a like a beer crate just t- turned upside down sitting on it with a car battery and a pair of, and a set of like uh, clippers with a little cardboard <laughs> sign just saying skinheads a quid and there was all these pissed up old men that were like long long it'd been a long time since they'd had a skinhead but i'd had a few beers we're going to see madness this guy was making a killing i, I imagine a lot of them got on here for when i go home that night but just the genius of just getting all these pissed up old men and charging them a quid to give them a skinhead before they went in to watch madness fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> there was a a really nice point around sort of scar and all of that where skinhead the skinhead fashion shall we say and racism became disassociated from one another and there were lots of non-racist and anti-racist skinheads black skinheads there was you know there was a, a lovely point at which uh, at which the kind of the 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 culture part the of youth culture kind of reasserted itself you know and the madness had a lot to do with that i think absolutely scar had a lot to do with that absolutely last track I'm not saying those 50-year-olds didn't then go in and beat shit out of somebody in the gig. <laughs> well, <I've done. laughs> they didn't necessarily by that point. <laughs> okay, for the last track, Dave, um, tell me a song that you think many people may not know that you would like them to hear. Oh, so this is... The, okay, so it's a, a track called Sleep by uh, the choral composer Eric Whitaker sung by the BYU singers. And uh, I came across this, bizarrely, I got sent it um, for my, uh, as one of the tracks to listen to when I was doing my XFM radio show. It's obviously completely inappropriate. It's a a straight choral track. 
but really the of all the instruments the human voice is by far the best the most expressive the most delicate the most emotive and uh, there's something I've always had a real soft spot for ensembles where everything is made of the same kind of instrument like an orchestra by and large is made of string instruments you know and so of the same proportions so the tones they make interact with each other in particularly interesting ways they tend to reinforce each other rather than cancel each other out brass bands are the same the 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 brass instruments in a brass band are a special shape they're oval they're elliptical really rather than oval and they're all in exactly the same proportion they're like larger and smaller copies of each other so the sound it makes they're all producing the same kind of tone of sound and so the sound that you know 30 players make sounds like 300 players when they're all playing well together and a, a, a choir is another of these things you know core i've um, core chorists singers when they sing together when it works they say that it rings and that's what they're talking about that point at which all of these similar sounding things are in phase with one another somehow obviously I don't mean they're physically in phase with each other but you know they're, they're, they're all singing um, and it's not all necessarily singing exactly the same note you know, I think some of it's to do with very, very slight dissonances that you kind of learn to do over time. But anyway, when a choir has it, again, you can get 30 people in a choir and it sounds like 300 people. And uh, Eric Whitaker is the master of this. That's that's his gig, yeah. is uh, assembling choirs and writing music um, to express that ringing thing when it when the whole thing becomes suddenly becomes massive and dramatic and huge and uh, this is uh, a track from one of his albums uh, he's very, very very famous in the classical music world these days because of his virtuosity with all of this kind of stuff but this this track sleep express it does this just perfectly it's uh, the music itself is relatively simple they're just block chords it doesn't weave in and out particularly but uh, the the uh, the chord sort of reasonably a level complex rather than o level complex yeah. so it's still relatively simple you know a lot of ninths and uh, major seventh and things like that but they um but uh, the effect is just mesmerizing utterly transporting um and uh, yeah people need to hear this stuff you know people think choral music boring <laughs> this is why choral music is not boring and has the potential to be some of the best music there is, you know, it's it's the earliest music. Drums and voices are the earliest music. They they both affect us deep down the most, in my view. You know, it's interesting. I, would, I was I read a book about the evolution of the arts. You know, from from uh, that was one of the things that it was about was the early evolution of the arts from you know our days as uh, as uh, 
pre-humans and you know what people have discovered about how how this kind these areas of our brain evolved and it's all to do with the size of the size of uh of social groups growing and how to tie these larger social groups together and you know how to give them shared experiences and that the, what it appears to be is that the first thing that evolved to tie these groups together was comedy you know making people laugh it's a very very good way to create social bonds and you know i'm not talking stand-up comedy i'm talking physical comedy you know i assume and the second thing that evolved was music by which of course i mean a lot of percussion and singing and that kind of thing rather than complex musical instruments came later the third thing that evolved was language isn't that odd language came third you would think that came first but uh so music predates language it's it's it it sits deeper in our in uh, in our brainstem the the effect it has on us than uh, the language does certainly that's true of me and uh yes choral music has the has the ability to uh, certainly again for me to affect me deepest of all vocal music but especially choral music and i just think people need to hear this stuff people need to hear how good it can be we make it a little easier for listeners of the podcast to to go and listen to that. We put together a little Spotify playlist with all your song picks on right. there, Dave, that people can go and listen to. Um, and once they've done that, what else can they expect from Dave Rantry, uh from the rest of this year? Obviously, we know that you've got the, the Wembley show next year with Blur, but in regards to Dave Rantry, what's coming up? Well, I've got... Uh Another single coming out at the end of this month, which isn't far away now, is it? And uh, then the album is out in the 20th of January. Um, I've got to do some more writing, really, because otherwise next year is looking suddenly rather full. So I don't want to end up at the end of next year without another album's worth of songs, because I want to get another album out in 2024. So... Um, also, I want to do some shows, some more solo shows. So I did three shows, uh, again, as a kind of testing the water, figure out how it might work. I think, you know, by the time I got to the London show, The Amira, I think I finally had figured out how it's going to work. I'm really quite excited about taking this album out on tour. So um, the downside is there's only nine nine playable songs by a, by a, by a small band, yeah, the 10th yeah. song you need an orchestra for. So and in fact a choir. So don't get, you can't get that on stage at the Amira. So uh, <laughs> be a bit smug. Wait for my Albert Hall gig. <laughs> to play the tenth song on the album. So really, I'm going to need a bit more music as well. So that's another motivation to get out there writing. Wonderful, Dave. <laughs> it's been a real joy to talk records with you, mate. Thank you so much Thanks for your time today. Pleasure. And um, yeah, I wish you all the best with the record. And uh, and I'll see you at Wembley, mate. <laughs> Take care. Thanks, Thanks very much, Dave. Cheers. Bye. Dave Rantree, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, what a lovely chat. What a super nice dude. When he, he came down to the Pink Toothbrush, I heard nothing but lovely reports as to what a kind human he was. And wasn't he just? Uh, how exciting. Blur are back. Blur are playing Wembley Stadium. What a moment to say you've played Wembley. Um, yeah, incredible, you know, from from being that, as he touched upon, you know, being that, that band that didn't really know how to do the live thing, experimented with different things on stage and, and played the Pink Toothbrush on that their tour. Uh, and then look at them now, you know, older, wiser, smarter, better, playing Wembley Stadium. 
Anyway, I mentioned at the beginning, um, once you've listened to this episode, go explore the back catalogue. Go do it, because um, if you like your, your indie music, then I have got hundreds and hundreds of episodes over there with all of your favourite indie stars. So go have a good old rummage around over there. I'm back next time. In the meantime, please go and support the podcast, get access to loads of other stuff at the Patreon. It's only a dollar a month, that's 20p a week, and you, yeah, you become one of the uh, one of the little off-the-beaten-track family. I promise you, it's not some kind of like uh, uh, weird kind of murdering sex cult. It's just a little Patreon where you get to uh, access more stuff. Uh, right. Thanks ever so much for listening, you lovely lot. Uh, I'll be back next time. See you soon. Bye-bye.